really focus on people because once the people part is taken care of, the operational results are automatically driven. You don't have to really push for that. But if your people are not taken care of, you will never be able to achieve operational excellence. And the lessons around servant leadership, right? So if you have 500 people working for you, that does not mean that they're working for you, but you are working for 500 people. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Raman Sagal, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Sharad Lal, the Curious Conversationist. Raman and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Jadeep Pansal, CEO of GHE Impact Ventures. We spoke about social entrepreneurship, how development trumps religion, and living a purpose driven life. Here's a quick bio. Jadeep is an award-winning social entrepreneur bringing sustainable development to the remotest communities in India. As the co-founder and CEO of GHE Impact Ventures, he brings solar energy and sustainable development to half a million people across five remote regions in India. Winner of the 2020 UN Climate Action Award, GHE's work has been documented by National Geographic, BBC and NDTV and has received awards by WTCC and the World Tourism Awards. Jadeep has been featured at Davos among the top leaders inspiring change in the world. He's also an Asia Foundation Fellow and has been recognized as a global young leader by WEF. He's also been recognized as an alumni leader under 40 by PNG. Jadeep worked in PNG in product supply for close to five years before becoming a social entrepreneur. What I loved about our conversation was Jadeep's passion and clarity of mission. He is so clear on his calling that I felt like leaving Singapore and joining him in the mountains. All of us would have heard of PVP at PNG, but few of us would have related to it as strongly as Jadeep did and then turned our life around in line with our purpose. In our discussion, Jadeep and I speak about building systems to scale versus solving problems impact one can create with the privilege we have, how social entrepreneurship should not be viewed as charity, it's a two-way relationship, how everyone has the right to development and the change it can bring about in a society. The episode is packed with heartwarming stories describing the wildest celebration when people get access to something as basic as electricity. We also have some frightening stories about being chased by bandits and a lot more. Overall, I feel this episode will inspire you to find something deeper within yourself and see how you can bring it to your life. Let's dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Jaydeep Bansal. Hi Jaydeep, welcome to the PNG Alumni Podcast. How are you doing this morning? Hi Sharad, pleasure to be on the podcast and good to hear from you. It's bright and sunny in India and the summers are hitting us, so it's getting hotter day by day. Nice, nice. Whereabouts in India are you right now? So I'm based out of Ahmedabad in the state of Gujarat. Right. That's in the western part of India. But all my work-related stuff is in the northern and the northeastern frontiers of India. Right, right. And we, I'm so excited to talk to you about all the good work you're doing. I mean, you're leading a purpose-driven life. You're doing work which is so fulfilling. But before we dig into all of that, Jaydeep, I'd love to understand who Jaydeep was before all the success that you've had. Is there any meaningful story that you might have from your parents while growing up, which has kind of shaped you in some ways? Thank you for asking that. And in fact, if I look back at my childhood, I'm the son of an army officer. So my father was in the Indian army, courtesy which we've had the opportunity to travel across the length and breadth of India. It was always changing. So every two to three years, we would move places, pack our bags, pack the entire house, move from one place to the other. And that meant making new friends all over again, establishing yourself in the new place. And then after three years, getting uprooted and going to a new place again. So that I think made me into what I would call as an extrovert. 
sort of really going to new places, exploring new friends, making and sort of interacting with new people, new geographies. And I think one thing that my father always used to teach me is that if everyone is going north, you go south. And that has really influenced a lot of the decisions that I've made till date in my life. Whether it was debating competitions in schools, to choosing a university, to even when I went to the university, I remember seeing everyone picking up guitar. So I realized that if everyone is a guitarist, I want to become the drummer because nobody wants to become a drummer. So I, it's just examples like this that have really influenced a lot of my decision making to the point that I think my father regretted teaching me this because I remember when it was time to choose between an expat role with PNG in London to versus a sabbatical to quit PNG, I chose the latter, whereas everyone was asking me to choose being an expat. So I think that that day, I think he, he was wondering whether it was a good idea to teach me this. If everyone goes north, you go south. But I think over a period of time, we realized that it was, it still is one of the most beautiful sort of lessons that I've learned from him. That's such a powerful lesson. And I can imagine like an Indian dad suddenly seeing my my son's now quitting this great career to kind of go south and questioning it. But it's so good with all the success that you achieved, along with fulfillment. I think you've got it both, which which has been so great to see. Now, I know you went to the Indian Institute of Technology, IIT. And then after that, you joined, a f you joined something else and got into PNG. If you can just paint a picture of what were the circumstances through which you kind of joined PNG and how did you pick it? So during IIT days, I remember ACADS was never a focus. So I was uh, doing everything else apart from academics. That meant having my own band. We used to keep touring. I remember bunking classes and exams for sort of going to performances. And once I even had like, I carried my entire drum kit to exam hall and the professor was stunned what I was doing. But I said, I have a performance immediately after. So either you allow me to take the exam later or this is what I have to do. So he said, no, I can't allow you to take the exam later. And so literally the whole drum kit was inside the exam hall. And then as soon as the exam was done, I <laughs> just packed up everything and then rushed to the venue. That's certainly going and south. The, the so, music, then I was also into marketing of Formula's car that we had made. So everything else apart from my cards, because I really wanted to utilize the days in Bombay, IIT Bombay, to sort of really explore what the universe, what the college has to offer, but more than that, what life has to offer really. And then I remember during the placement season, a lot of the consults like the McKenzie's and BCG's, they put a lot of focus on academics which was never my forte, but I remember companies like PNG really looked at overall holistic development of yourself, not just ACADS, but spikes across multiple diverse areas. And I think that was really what led me into sort of being accepted by PNG. I still remember I, we finally got the offer at like 12 in the night that we have been selected by PNG. And it was just a wonderful feeling. In fact, a short story on that, my, my interviews had gone really well. I remember when the placement coordinator came out with the list of people selected, my name was not on it. There were two pages apparently. And I said very confidently that why haven't I been selected? And the placement coordinator was like, you're not. What's there to sort of be so confident about? I said, can you turn the page around? And on the other page, my name was. So, oh wow! I mean, I was, there was so much confidence in that moment. And I just remember the feeling of euphoria and you, you feel that everything is set now for yourself, that you are now being placed in one of the best companies in the world. And uh, there is of course, this whole idea of being through PNG all through your life. I remember even saying in my interview that I just want to stick to one company and grow within that, which is essentially the philosophy of PNG from grow from within. And so that sort of really resonated with me. And, but unfortunately, life had other plans. So after five years of working with PNG across multiple diverse roles, I called it quits. But I think the experience within PNG has been the most fulfilling. I think whatever fundamentals I've learned about career, about purpose, values, and principles have been the foundation of what I've, uh, what I've been able to do with my social enterprise. Such a great story, Jadeep. And, and, such a great, I know how strongly PVP seems to have resonated with you and, and we're going to dig into that. As you joined PNG and you described the feeling of feeling so excited, you made it to this great company. What were the early days like? Were there any defining moments and lessons that you learned during the early stages of your career there? Absolutely. I think the earliest one was I was based out of the Blades and Razors plant, Gillette. 
yes. in the northern part of India. And because we were into manufacturing and supply chain, I remember going into shifts very early into the career. And for eight months, we were going into shifts to understand how the plant works, what are the pain points of technicians. And I remember initially not liking it at all, to the point that I'd raised a huge cry about it that that time from IIT and I'm being asked to go into shifts. And I remember my HR manager at that time, Ravinder Jindal, he's been my mentor and sort of guiding angel. And at that time, he really told me to sort of forget about all this noise and coming back from where I was, but to sort of really focus on people and to really understand why the intent of sending me into shifts was to understand what the technicians go through day in, day out. What are their pain points? Because there were some issues with regards to labor and everything. And so it was really about increasing those touch points with the technicians. And that, I think, resulted in us getting a, I remember the PNG survey score was 92 in our second year, which was one of the highest across all the manufacturing plants. And that was only because of this increased touch points with the technicians to understand their pain points. And that's when I realized how much people matter because once the people part is taken care of, the operational results are automatically driven. You don't have to really push for that. But if your people are not taken care of, you will never be able to achieve operational excellence in spite of whatever IWS you want to put in. And so that was a huge lesson for me. And I think I would really credit all of that to Ravinder Jindal. And the way he brought all the team together, it was a small team of 13 managers managing more than 500 technicians in that small plant. But the way we were able to achieve operational excellence results, people excellence, and winning all the awards across the BNR portfolio was just amazing. I would sort of, again, if there's all the lessons that I've learned in people management, it's all through him. So I think those were the defining moments initially, sure. where it was all about understanding that if you truly empower people and the lessons around servant leadership, right? So if you have 500 people working for you, that does not mean that they're working for you, but you are working for 500 people. So I think those lessons were are still ingrained in my mind. And even today when I'm managing like, we have more than 200 people working in our organization. I think it's the same philosophy again to the to the project managers that we have, to the on-ground engineers that we have. That's the same philosophy of servant leadership and PVP and doing the right thing at whatever cost. I mean, you know, till date, we have not paid a single penny to any local state government or to any local panchayat for getting our impact work done. And that has all come because of the lessons that I learned with PNG, that we do the right thing at whatever cost it may be. But it is about standing up for your principles. So I think those were the really formative lessons that have really got ingrained. Once they say that once a PNGer, you're a PNGer for life. I think that that I truly understand now. Absolutely, Jaideep. Uh, I mean, so wonderful to hear th this great lesson of people at a young age. I mean, we still remember you're just out of university and, and these are the lessons that you're learning. And what also struck me at that young age, PVP, kind of resonated strongly with you and you've talked about it quite a bit in, in the short conversation that we've had. I'd love to hear why did it resonate so strongly with you? What was it about the PVP that resonated? Often kids at that age are looking at ambition, how do I move higher in the organization? But to you, it was that purpose that resonated. So if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, in fact, I remember one of the, in one of the conversations around career, someone gave this very beautiful analogy that if you are just happy with your promotion, that means there are only four or five moments in your entire life in PNG that you'll be happy. That means you'll move from maybe band one to two to three, four, five, six, or maximum maybe seven if you're in the PS supply chain career. And that means are you going to base all your life in just these five or six moments of happiness? Then you're looking at a very wrong definition of happiness. It is about the work you do day in and day out. And I think that is something that was really like an aha moment for me because Often IIT makes you very competitive and for you it's about getting that day one placement, getting the highest pay packages, getting into like a nice job and then getting the fastest promotion. But then after a point of time you realize it's all futile because it's not about chasing a certain goal but it is about how you live your life each and every day and that is what PVP was all about. So that that is why it sort of really resonated and started changing the way I also used to think about my career at PNG because it became more about what do I do day in and day out that can improve and enrich my life? And more importantly, I also sort of, this whole idea of touching and improving lives was really what mattered to me a lot. That 
how can I be of value to someone else in the organization, in the broader sort of workspace that we had. And I think I literally, I took that touching and improving lives tool literally because I, after a point, I realized that while making and manufacturing blades and razors, or then I moved to the hair care unit with Pantene and Head and Shoulders, that while I was touching and improving lives, maybe at an external scale, but not directly. And that's why I moved away from PNG to a social entrepreneur lifestyle. But I think that touching and improving lives was something else that really resonated. Very, very strong. And you talked about touching and improving lives. And you, of course, learned the lesson on people being so important. Do you recollect one or two stories of maybe an impact or a life that you touch within PNG? And how did that kind of work out for you? I think not one, but many, because I remember that within our BNR unit, there were, used to be no work system. So there was no career path for people. I got so excited about when we got that opportunity to make a technician work system for our employees, because that time Gillette was still integrating with PNG. So there was this still Gillette hierarchy, which was being moved away and the PNG work systems were being adapted. And in fact, I became the IWS manager. I believe the youngest IWS manager, I was only one year into the company and I was made the IWS manager and I led the site from phase zero to phase two. And it was the fastest sort of pace transitions for any BNR site globally. And that was only possible because like I said, the focus on people, the focus on capacity and capabilities. And I remember our people from 2010 to 2015, the transformation that we could see in their lives, in their families, in their overall growth, in their overall skills. We had technicians who had never been outside India, suddenly going outside India for trainings on EM and PM and work systems. And so it was so gratifying to see that as a unit of people, as a unit of managers, we were able to bring all this change for our 500 employees, integrating them with the PNG work systems and also giving them that aspirational career path. Because now suddenly all their goals and results were being linked to a growth in career and growth in growth in their own self and growth in sort of their capacity to earn more for their family. So I think that was really a very transformational moment for me also and for all of us within the organization that we could create and leave behind this legacy. Uh, as you were speaking about it, I, I was reminded about when I did a sales stint in Hyderabad and like you said, you worked with technicians on the shop floor. I worked with a lot of the distributor staff on, on sales and like you said, having, if you can make even a small little difference in their lives, the impact is huge. And the gratification that you get from there is unparalleled. So it was fantastic hearing you talk about that. I also kind of relived a little of my experience from, from earlier. Now, were there any times in PNG where you faced things where it didn't work out, challenges, and then you learned a tough lesson through it? I think failures have been a constant part because whenever you're trying to innovate, you always end up failing. And there were many such instances, for example, just recollecting some of them where we tried to, there were some projects around optimizing the whole packaging lines, uh, which failed miserably because we did not really take into account the externalities as well as the capacity of our technicians to do that transition. So what was a stable line was totally destabilized for more than a month, which led to a huge loss in volume output delivery, because that was a constraint line that we were trying to optimize. And I think going back and looking back at it, at the whole project, I think the whole idea was that we were so consumed by improving the outputs that we did not take into account that what should be the entire process of improving it? What could be the hmm. optimum way of sort of improving the process versus trying to do it in one go, which was the whole goal. Because sometimes when there is so much success being achieved, you think whatever you touch, you will immediately succeed. But I remember that was a, there was a proper business meeting unit like the VP had called in to understand why there's a sort of a production downpour because the marketing team had escalated, the sales team had, everyone had done an escalation and it all came down to the plant. And I think that was a le uh, lesson where we had also not communicated to the external stakeholders that this is going to happen. So there might be some blips. So that was a lesson in search of one, communicating to everyone. I think communicating clearly to everyone why you are doing what you're doing and what could be the possible impact and what could be the worst case scenario and the best case scenario. I don't think we communicated that very clearly, which led to a lot of commotion in the market as well and us losing a small market share for a month. So that was one huge lesson. The other ones have been more sort of day-to-day -day sort of practical lessons where it is about, I was leading a team of six managers and 100 technicians towards the second half of my career. 
and there there have been instances where i might have thought something and i might have communicated directly with the technicians because i used to have a good rapport with the technicians but maybe ended up bypassing my managers what started happening was the technicians would come directly to me instead of their managers which i realized later that this is something wrong that i have set up so it took time to sort of take back everything and ensure that the the line managers are the first line of communication and then getting everyone's feet on the ground so i think those were two immediate lessons that come to my mind one was around communication around what you are doing why you are doing and the second was ensuring that your people are empowered versus you directly trying to empower everyone yeah well, what i sense jadeep is like as an enthusiastic youngster you kind of solving problems and taking it up and rolling up your sleeves and making things happen and it's more like stepping back having the right systems having the right process so the system can scale up such a powerful lesson to learn now changing courses of you've spoken and alluded a lot earlier about how you had to choose between this big fork in the road between the mountains and the uk so i'd love to hear where did that come about and how did you make that decision so 2013 is when i met paras lumba who is the founder of ghe the social enterprise that i am now the ceo of and he had gone to antarctica and came back very inspired to do something for the communities in india so he was planning to run an expedition where the idea was we get together a group of people from across the world travel to ladakh in the himalayas and do something for the communities and i met him and and i heard his story was super inspired i said i want to join your mission and i took 14 days of vacation leave from png and we traveled to the mountains and we set up like a education center for the local village kids there and that was really amazing to see that in just two weeks you could really bring a transformation in the lives of the people and sort of create a tangible change we kept in touch and he also joined another company meanwhile but in 2014 we decided why don't we electrify a village this time because there were many villages in that region without any access to electricity and that meant trekking for 3 days from the nearest road carrying solar panels and batteries on a backpack and i again took a vacation of 14 days we trekked all the way to this village a thousand year old village and in just two days we transformed this village from complete darkness to having electricity in each and every room with led lights and solar panels wow and that was truly transformational i mean the fact that you as an individual or a group of individuals could really bring change at such a massive scale for a community that is not totally transformed and i remember the the whole village had gathered we did a countdown 3 2 1 and then we turned on the lights and it was just magic people started dancing there were tears of joys we were we all sort of just that instant gratification of being able to see so much genuine happiness on the faces of people was just priceless that sort of led me to it led me to the fact that ultimately who are these mountains to decide which people should have access or which people should not have if you have the right technology and if you have the right human will power then you can bring everyone at par with access to development and i remember that night we did not sleep we were not able to sleep because the villagers did not switch off the lights they mm-hmm. they were seeing light for the first time in their lives and so that was really amazing to see and then when i came back i remember i wrote a blog about it which was published in the pg newsletter png newsletter it was so well received and it was all about the blog was more about work life balance where i was working with png but as on the side i was doing this mission of bringing development to remote communities in the himalayas i remember getting mails from my peers to technicians to even the directors and vps everyone was writing to me and telling me what a fantastic initiative and they really respect this and it's so great to see the work that we are doing and that sort of led me to think then i started realizing that why am i doing what am i doing and 2015 then i start decided to take a sabbatical from png for 4 months and it was during that time i remember that i was told that there's an opportunity to go to london and if i want to apply with the i remember the fabric care plant as a operations department manager and i clearly remember my manager that time balaji ayengar he called me and he said look we have this opportunity there would you like would you be interested and he knew i was going on a sabbatical and i said no in a, in one mm-hmm. moment i just said no i want to go on my sabbatical because that would have led me to cancel my sabbatical which i was not ready to because i was so focused now to go to the mountains for 4 months live there explore every nook and corner understand what communities need and try to figure out a development model around it and i said no and this was a thursday 
I put the phone down. I called my parents up and I told them that so and so offer my my manager called me so and so offer has come and I've refused. My mother went mad. My father, <laughs> she got my father on the call. They both were like, "What are you doing? Can you think about what you're doing? Are you are you in your right mind?" Because imagine like for parents, right? They always want the best for you, and suddenly you had this great opportunity. of being in one of the best companies in the world a base out of london and for punjabi parents sharat it's like yeah yeah true yeah, yeah. right uh, <laughs> and their dreams are being washed away by <laughs> by the mountains exactly and so they asked me to call balaji back and tell him that can you give me time till monday to sort of rationalize my thoughts and come back to you and i did that so i called balaji again he said totally understand take time till monday come back to me and over those 3 4 days my parents just asked me they said that okay if you don't want to listen to us talk to your friends talk to your mentors see what everyone has to say and unfortunately everyone said that go to london because they said yeah we understand your passion for mountains and everything but this is something you'll be able to scale up even later but this is a great opportunity not many people get it you should go so on monday i went back and i said no because i was very clear in my heart and in my mind that where i want to go with this and i remember that after one week my sabbatical was beginning my parents knew that i had lost it now so they they had now given <laughs> and four days into the sabbatical i was stuck in a landslide so i and a local person we were going to survey a village there was a landslide first he slipped then i slipped and we were slay, we were saved by a slab of rock which was preventing us from just falling into the valley and i was stuck there and then there i'm thinking was it a right choice to leave the article <laughs> and now i'm stuck here but i think in those moments it's when you realize why you are doing what you're doing and for me the only path was to move forward and so we rescued ourselves both of us luckily and we managed to reach the village and carried out everything and so and there were many incidents that happened during the sabbatical i fell into glacial water being dragged by the water stream this was in the month of october towards the end of my sabbatical and i was pulled out by the villagers and my whole body was just covered with ice sheets and i still had 2 hours of trekking to go so by the time i reached the village i was totally hypothermia i was put in front of the fire for almost 2 hours i remember still shivering but i think the the fact that you could really bring about a change in the lives of the people was what was always motivating me at the back of my mind by the time i came back from my sabbatical i had already made plans to quit I was invited to Davos in 2016 to be at the World Economic Forum and I shared the story of the village transformation work that we are doing with the world leaders there and I was able to mobilize support from a couple of companies and that was enough for me to then go back immediately put my papers and quit PhD so that was the the sort of journey of change that I went What a powerful story, Jaydeep. I mean, I had goosebumps throughout the story. I mean, there's so many moments there where you describe the village and you describe that countdown. It was almost like we were feeling the countdown, and you can suddenly see the lights come on and the village excited. And and then, of course, the dilemma. I was wondering, as your parents asked you to question the decision that you made and talk to your friends, and your parents were saying, "Hey, don't go." And then you tell Balaji that, "All right, you'll come back on Monday." You talk to your friends; they also tell you, "Don't go." but then you you they also tell you go and go to london and then you come back to balaji and say hey i want my sabbatical i'm not going to london what made you take that call which was against everyone against all the advice that you were getting i think there was a certain sense of by that time i think there were two changes that had happened in my thought process one was money was not a motivating factor for me that was a huge shift because I remember early from IIT days it like I said it it always used to be get promotion get paid the highest always compare with your peer group but then when I started doing these journeys to Himalayas from 2013 that thought process shifted in me that money was not a motivating factor it was more with the privilege I have what can I do more so those two things sort of really shaped the decision for me and I knew at my at the back of my mind if if all fails I can always come back to any corporate and I can still earn a decent living. So I think once you are very sure of what is your worst case scenario, then decisions become very easy for you. And in my case, that was what how it played out. I was sure that if I try this, if nothing works out, I can still come back to any corporate or I can do something else. I can still manage a decent living. It's not like I'll be on the streets. And so once you are once you have that at your back of your mind, 
then the decision was very easy for me and I had become so fixated by that time to go to the mountains and to bring change that then everything else became immaterial for me basically. Great story. I mean, the motivation itself was a strong driver and then with the rational thought as well, you knew you had a safety net to go back to. You could always go back to other, other corporates, which helped you make that decision. Now you make the decision, you join this organization. I understand you joined as chief operating officer, worked your way up to a CEO and together with the founder who you spoke about, both of you kind of co-founded this, you created this company. What was that experience like from day one creating this company? So I think the experience was really, I would say, powerful, gratifying, and also humbling at the same time. The initial years were spent a lot traveling to remote corners of the Himalayas. I mean, we have surveyed every nook and corner. I, in fact, I can probably say that we know more than the local people. <laughs> and we have been to more places than what the local people. Every time we go, we tell them, oh, have you been there? And the local people are like, no, where is that? We really took a lot of time in in surveying all these areas, in understanding the needs of the communities, in understanding what can be the possible technology solutions that can be installed in these areas. And so a lot of time was invested in that. And that sort of laid the foundation for the work that was supposed to come after. Any development intervention that you bring to the communities, it's really important. It has to be a two-way street. You, are, you cannot say that you are helping the communities. You are enabling them with technology solutions, solar power, health centers, homestay, education access, digital access. But in return, you are taking back the smiles and the gratification of being able to bring development. Mm. So I won't say we were helping these communities. Also, it's important to understand that the community understands the technology. They understand the intervention. If you push things, they will never be accepted. But it has to be a pull. So to create that pull, we spent a lot of time understanding the needs of the people, staying with them. I mean, we have stayed with the villagers in their homes with, and we have slept on like barren grounds. We have slept with yaks at one point of time. We have slept in tents. We have slept in every difficult condition you can imagine because that is how the villagers live there. So what looks like an adventure for us is like a daily routine for them. Mm. And so it was important to sort of step into their shoes, understand the world from their perspective and then bring them any solutions which can improve their lives. So the first couple of years was really spent into that. And then, of course, growing the organization, finding the right people who share the spirit of development. And I think that we found people organically. As we started telling our story, there was a lot of media coverage also. So I remember NDTV, the national news channel in India, they came and did a documentary about our work. Then National Geographic did a one-hour documentary on our work around how mini grids are empowering remote Himalayan communities. Then we had a BBC come and do a documentary. So there was a lot of footage that we were getting. And in that result, we were also able to find really like-minded people who saw the work we were doing or who were part of our journeys to the mountains to bring development and who wanted to join us. So everyone in our organization till date who has joined us has joined us organically. We have never approached anyone through LinkedIn or any of these platforms. People like the story, they want to join the mission and they want to be part of this journey. So I think that's how we have found people. And it's really important to find people who have the right passion and have the right attitude because working with villagers is not easy. Mm. You have to cross geographical boundaries. You have to cross language boundaries. You have to show a lot of empathy. And you, like I said, you can't go with that mindset of, I'm here, I'm here to help you. That means you should be talking nicely to me. It doesn't work that way. Such powerful points there, Jaydi. For a lot of us who are thinking of any level of social entrepreneurship. I like the first point where you made, it's not charity. You're not helping people. It's a symbiotic relationship. You're giving them something, you're getting something, whether it's smiles or gratification. I love that point. And I also love the point of, you're not smart enough to tell them what they need to do. You need to spend time with them, understand their unique needs, and together you can help build things for them. So that mindset is so powerful in being able to create something sustainable. Love that. Thanks for sharing that, Jaydeep. Now, as you were doing this, there's one part of the brain which is focused on the good that you're doing and getting energy out of that. There probably is another part which needs to think of the business element of it. And of course, getting people was easier, but there are other business elements. There are economics, there's money, there's spreading the words, there's evangelizing, and both then take the company forward. Is that how you sensed it or how did you work the commercial plus the social entrepreneurship angle? Initially, the focus was not really on commercial. It was setting up a development model and understanding what kind of technology solutions are required by the communities. 
So initially when we set out to form the company, the idea was first setting up a development model and really understanding what the communities need. Because once that was set up, we knew the commercial angles would come in in a relatively easier manner because for us, the focus was always on development. And that has still been the core focus of the company. And what we realized was there were two models that we set up. One was where we were working directly with foundations and CSR companies in India and deploying projects on the ground where we were charging, let's say, a project management fee. That became the way to sort of put food on our table and also to grow our organization and to hire more people. And the other one was where we were doing these expeditions, which we started calling as leadership expeditions. We would do it in two ways, B2B and B2C. So B2B would mean is we would tie up with companies like GE, Aon and some other companies where they would send their employees as part of a leadership development expedition mm. to the mountains. And we had people from all over the world, VPs, directors in their companies who would come on the ground, electrify a village and really understand serve it, the elements of five elements of leadership where you envision, energize, engage, execute. And enable. So I think those and the whole element of servant leadership was really at a strong play in these expeditions. So people learned a lot through that. Then we had the B2C where we were inviting people to join our trips, which we were promoting on our website. And then we had the, the project development work that we were doing. And then COVID hit, which led to these expeditions going down to zero. But then it also gave us time to sort of really look at what other development models exist and that's where we also started looking at carbon financing because nowadays there's a lot of push on companies to become net zero where they want to offset their emissions by sort of either by improving their own supply chains optimizing their supply chains and moving to renewable energy but also by offsetting their emissions through carbon credits and so what we realized was there's a huge market there where we could deploy clean energy solutions for the communities and generate carbon credits which can then be sold to these companies and that's that sort of spun out a whole new revenue stream in itself where we could now mobilize financing for communities where earlier nobody was interested in but now suddenly because there was this carbon credit element we had a lot of financing being mobilized to bring development solutions to these communities and so we are working with a lot of companies in India and outside India as well who want to become net zero and we are enabling them in their mission while being able to create positive impact on the communities on the ground. So I think there was what I've realized is if you, are, if you are very focused on the impact, the revenue streams eventually turn out because people on the ground are smart enough. We have smart enough people in the team who are able to sort of map out that what impact vertical can be linked to what revenue stream. And revenue is not the main, You commercially, we are not looking at a very high profit margin or sort of really scaling up the company because it's easier to do that. But the challenge is the sustenance of it. So what we are looking at is we have to be very sure on the impact we create. We do small, but we do beautiful. And we ensure that when I'm talking to you, Sharad, if I tell you the first village was electrified in 2014 and the solar grids are still working fine, the villagers are still using the solar grids for all their daily lighting needs and all their aspirational needs. That for me is success versus telling you something now, you go to that village and find nothing is working. Hmm. Absolutely, Gary. I love that point of, where you've started a business because of a certain purpose. And if you focus single-mindedly on impact, the revenues and others will come. So there are different ways of looking at the business. You're not starting with, hey, how do I get revenue? You're starting with, how do I make the impact? And then revenue is an enabler on that impact. So that's a great way to look at these kind of businesses. Just to add more to that, I think what we, what we also believe and within our team is, if we really had to earn a lot of money, I should have still been with PNG. I should not have quit. Hmm. So, like I said, money was, I mean, definitely you need money on the table, but I love this book called The Psychology of Money. money. Yes. Right? So, where it yes. is about defining what is enough for you, right? Yeah. So, for me, I think for me and my wife and as a family, we have been able to define what is enough for us. And beyond that, everything else is aspirational. And I remember when I moved from PNG to sort of join GHE, I took like a, almost like a, I went to one fourth of my salary. And like I said, that was never the motivation. Even today, for me, it is more about when I go to a place where I find that their community is still deprived of development, the pressure on my mind is how do I mobilize financing to bring development to these communities? The pressure is not how do I earn more money? Because if I have to do that, I can frankly leave all this and go back to a corporate job. That's always on the table, but that's really not the motivator. Such good clarity, Jaydeep. Such good clarity. 
I was wondering through this experience, were there any adversities as you go to these remote lands that you faced? So every area has a different challenge and I'll just walk you through some examples. So when we were in the mountains, in the Himalayas, there were always these risks of landslides, of being thrown into glacial waters or met with a lot of logistical challenges once. The solar grids were being, because they are carried by horses and donkeys, the horses apparently got a bit astray and we lost the solar panels or we lost wire bundles. So there are a lot of these logistical challenges <laughs> that happen in these areas. But I think it's the love of the communities, the, the warmth and the love that you get from the communities that allows you to overcome all these challenges. And then we, when we moved to the northeast part of India, there was, I remember the first village we were electrifying, I and my engineer were, we were in a village in the jungles. And suddenly the local villagers came and said, sir, we have to run. There are bandits coming. <laughs> we have to understand what they are saying because these villages are close to the Bangladesh border. Typically what these bandits do is they'll kidnap you, take you towards the other side of Bangladesh and they'll ask you for ransom money. And so initially I did not understand what they're saying. But then when they said we have to run and we were in one part of the village in the jungle and from there to go to the main village, was 15 minutes of trek through the jungles. And we ran through that in the middle of the night. And we kept falling, got bruised multiple times. We finally reached the main village. And there the whole villagers had gathered. And I was told by the village head, of course, the, I can't speak their language. So it's always through a translator. And there were like two translations happening. And they said, sir, don't worry, we'll take care of you. And I, there was no phone signal. I could not call anyone. I could not call for any help. And I and my engineer are wondering, what do we do? And I told my engineer, look, I'm the one who looks different here because I wear a turban, I'm a stick. Yeah. And I'm like, if they have to kidnap, eh, between the two of us, they'll kidnap me. So you don't worry. And he started laughing. And But I remember that entire night, we did not sleep. Even if there was a dog barking, we used to get scared. And we were making plans of where to hide throughout the entire night. Anyway, nothing happened. In the morning, we got up. The villagers said that our, our team of young people, they, they had made a perimeter across the village and we were, if anyone would have come, we would have definitely sort of stopped them or we would have cut them or whatever. And I'm like, that day then I wondered, should I go back now? I mean, should we, and this was the first village we were electrifying. Should I go back for my own safety and for the safety of my engineer? Like I said, there was no phone signal. I could not even hmm. inform my wife as to what's happening. But then I realized, if I go back, how does it make me different from anyone else who would have been in this situation and would have turned back? And like, you know, again, my father saying, if everyone goes north, you go south. So we stick back in the village. We worked around the clock. The villagers also joined in and we set up the entire solar grids. And again, that night, I remember the celebration continued till like four in the night. And that was 21st December. This was a Christian community in the Northeast. They, are, they, they were converted into Christianity. They, of course, follow the tribal culture as well. And Christmas was on 25th December, but the entire village told me that they have never had such a huge celebration even on Christmas that they were having because of the electrification of the village. And so till 4 a.m. we just kept dancing and enjoying and there was a celebration in the village. So I've realized access to development has led to being some of the best celebrations I've seen in the village and some of the insane dancing happening, singing, dancing and merrymaking throughout the entire night. That never happens in any other area. And this is irrespective of the culture or the religion of the village. I mean, we've had villagers who were Muslim and they said that we have never had even big celebrations at Eid that we are happening today because of the electrification of the village. Such a powerful point, Jadeep. Development and getting what a lot of us consider basic is more powerful goes beyond, transcends religion and so many things. And the kind of celebration you get out of that is, is unbelievable. What a fascinating story. Now, Jadeep, you're going to the mountains, you keep traveling and doing this work, but I also know you have a family, you have a wife, you have a three-year-old daughter. How do you balance work and life? In the, in the initial years, there was a lot of travel. So almost for, in a calendar year, almost six to seven months, I would be out on the road. And unfortunately, that time there used to be no phone signals also. So I had no idea of what was happening back home. So it was tough. But I think my wife and family, they really supported a lot. Especially my wife who sort of, she was the one when I was dating her, she was the one who convinced me to quit. Oh. A lot of credit goes to her as well. Wow. And follow my passion and dreams. And I think so that's definitely been a huge support system. 
And now the travel has reduced because now we have teams, we have capable people on the ground who manage. So even now, once a month for, for a week, I do travel to these areas. But now, of course, there is the mobile penetration has increased. And that has also led to a lot of awareness in the villagers. So a lot of the earlier sort of, I remember once we were in a village in Nagaland in the northeast part of India and the village got electrified because there was a lot of noise and celebration. We were visited by three people from a nearby militant camp with guns. And they asked, where is the person? And of course, I was there. So they were requesting that, can we also get solar for our militant camp? And I was wondering in my mind, how do I tell them that no company in India or outside would fund electrification for a militant camp? But I think it goes to show everybody needs development. Hmm. Everybody needs access. Everybody needs to modernize in these day and age. And a lot of people also ask me, aren't you spoiling these villages by giving them access to development? Now they will have access to internet. They will get spoiled. But frankly, like I said, it's never a push. It is always a pull. The communities demand these development. Otherwise, they will cease to exist. If a village does not have any access to development, the villages will ultimately migrate to the towns and the rich culture and heritage and their farmlands will just cease to exist. And nobody wants that. People think it's a good thing to migrate to the towns. But if you ask the villagers, they don't want to migrate to the towns. They want to continue to stay in their farmlands where they can grow their own food. They don't have to spend any money. And they, if they can get access to education and digital tools for their kids, that's what they want being staying in the villages. So for us, the whole idea is to create smart carbon neutral villages that are really sort of the future for these communities. And in that work, I've seen that as, as and when over the years, access to road has increased, access to mobile connectivity has increased. So at least now I can do video calls back home so that my daughter does not miss me. She, of course, no, now realizes. Earlier, she did not realize where my father is going and coming back. But now she knows when I'm going that, okay, now he's going. So there's a lot of crying that happens. <laughs> Again, it's, it's mm. uh, beautiful to have that family support system. And I'm really proud of my teams also on the ground that we have been able to build over the years that are allowing me to now spend more time with my family. And I work from home. That's always been the case for the past seven years now. Or basically, I work from anywhere, to put it that way. So my wife, she, she's a designer. She works with a, a company in India called Godrej Properties. So she has a daily office. Yeah. So when I'm not traveling, I'm at home. I'm taking care of the kid and also in parallel doing all these calls and doing on-ground meetings and stuff. But when I'm traveling, then she, we either call our parents to be at home with our daughter. Right. So, so far, that's how we are managing. Understand. And Jadib, you seem to be, I mean, your sabbaticals are even more uh, you're working even harder in your sabbaticals than than your normal work. So do you ever take the foot off the gas pedal? Do you ever just relax and, and leave all these things and just take some time off? Unfortunately, or fortunately, no. I think there's so much <laughs> excitement every day. And I think one of the things I think, which also coming back to your question of leaving PNG, right? Because I realized hmm. life was too predictable in PNG. I knew if I was there, what I would be doing five or 10 years down the line, right? But in this world of social entrepreneurship, where you are hustling every day, it's a very unpredictable life. It has led me to a lot of opportunities. In fact, I remember when I had gone to Davos in 2018, I also had the privilege of meeting the CEO then, David Taylor. So I had the opportunity oh, yes. to meet David Taylor at Davos. And I was thinking, had I been in PNG, I would never had the chance to do that. And then suddenly I'm there and I'm telling him my story. And we had a five-minute conversation on how PNG really helped me to do what I was doing as a social entrepreneur. And so it was really great. So life is very unpredictable. You go to places, you meet amazing people. So at one end of the spectrum, you are meeting all these CEOs and all these politicians and talking about your work. And on the other spectrum, you are living with the villagers and trying to see what more you can do for them. So I think it's, it's this diversity of work. It's this unpredictability that sort of really excites me every day. And I was telling every someone the other day that when you're working for a company, you work Monday to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you can switch off, right? Yes. As a social entrepreneur, you're working every day because every conversation, you're trying to see, okay, what could be, not in a transactional manner, but also you're trying to just speak out your mind, see if there can be any other ideas that can be generated. So it's always, you're always on and you're always off. I think you switch between the two. So it's never, I don't feel ever burnt out. I don't always feel very excited, but maybe that's just me. Maybe I may slow down after a couple of years, but right now I think it's just, the it's 100% throttle. Right. How and, and with that passion and the kind of work and gratification you get, I, th I think I was reading somewhere about burnout. It There's a graph between 
the kind of gratification that you get and how much you extend yourself. And if you're always getting that gratification, even if you're extending yourself, you're still within the burnout limit without getting burnt out. So interesting to hear that. Jaydeep, as you think about the future, what are your plans for the next five to 10 years? I think the mission is really the vision and mission like we used to have in PNG is very clear. Yes. So the vision is really to become a one-stop shop for rural development communities. Like we go in and we we have the entire portfolio of impact that we can bring to a community starting from electrification, health, education, livelihood, low carbon solutions. And so that's what we are doing right now. And the mission is to sort of expand across multiple geographies. Right now we are uh, working across several geographies in India. We have just opened up our operations in Nepal and we are now planning to expand to some of the African countries as well, such as Uganda and Rwanda. So it's really about expanding to multiple geographies across the world. And in 10 years, I see that GHE becomes like this company that is known to create positive social impact on the communities and leaving behind a sustainable change rather than just like a one-time transformation. So it's really about creating that sustainable change that really alleviates the sustainable development goals in these areas. And because I firmly believe that if, if we are to truly achieve the sustainable development goals, unfortunately, we won't be able to achieve them by 2030, being very realistic. But they have to be achieved in the remotest corners of the world and not just in a Singapore or a Delhi. So it's about really bringing development access to these communities and really bringing the next generation of people that are living in these areas with the hope and aspiration that they too can have a life as compared to their counterparts in a Delhi or Mumbai. Well, with your passion, people in these corners are already seeing it and they're starting to believe. And hope is the starting point and then you're actually making it happen. So what a wonderful thing to do. As a purpose-driven leader yourself who's running a, a social entrepreneurship, what advice would you give to leaders in large organizations who are not necessarily as connected to purpose as you are and your organization is? How can they bring about purpose in their organizations? What advice would you give them? I think when we talk about the big challenges in the world right now, climate change is definitely on everyone's agenda and creating a sustainable world for a future generation. So I, I think if people can then link their business results with how it translates to creating a sustainable future for the generations that are to come, that is a very strong purpose for people to believe in and to rally behind. I mean, for example, I had this webinar with the PNG baby care unit where we had all the directors and the BP and I told them one thing that I would love to see change within PNG for example is we have these five rocks right or we have those work and development plans yes and we used to have goals that reduce plastic usage or reduce or save money but the goal always used to be save money or provide sort of better financial results but can that financial result be actually translated into a meaningful goal that can impact our planet. For example, if you're in operations, if you're into packaging, if you're able to reduce the plastic usage by 1%, what does that result to how many tons of plastic being taken away from our earth? Or how many communities will it benefit? I think if you are able to bring that external linkage into communities, into waste generation, instead of just a money, that I think is a huge shift because for any employee then, they can then feel that I am able to also contribute to making our world a better place to live in. And I firmly believe that had I been in PNG, the scale of impact that I can have working in an organization like PNG would have been much larger than being a social entrepreneur. But of course, being a social entrepreneur, I'm able to do things that I want to do. But for example, in your sales, if your people are able to reduce the waste products or if they're able to reduce the packaging or improve the packaging by even a delta, Imagine the amount of savings that it has, not just financially, but in terms of the overall sustainability. So I think that's where organizations start to think, they should start to think in that manner, that how does each and every goal that is listed on the work plans or on the company's goals and mission statement links to the environment and not just do lip service to it. Because that is where a lot of kids are not talking about. They want to become more sustainable. They want to be associated with brands that are sustainable. They want to ensure that we are able to arrest climate change. And imagine if your organization is able to translate those goals into tangible actions for the climate. Then that's something that you have really built a strong purpose for everyone. And that does not mean that everyone has to become a social entrepreneur. That means even if you're working in a banking, finance, consultancy, FMCG, 
or manufacturing any vertical, you are able to really contribute positively to the planet. Great point, Jaydeep. And I think the good news, at least with PNG, is they are taking this seriously. I think it's going beyond lip service. We've come in touch with some of the folks here in this part of the world. There's a president looking into it. There are people looking in that organization who are looking into it beyond just cost saving, as you mentioned. And what's interesting as well is often, and, and that's the conversation I had with the sustainability guy here in Singapore, often when brands look at sustainable packaging or some sustainable initiative, they actually see an economic rise with it as well. So it's doing good as well as helping shareholders. So there are so many of these low-hanging fruits that are still available as the starting point. And then, of course, building it from there. Now, Jaydeep, as we shift gears, we've, we've, we've had such an interesting conversation on, on so many subjects. Let's get to some final fun facts about you. What is it that surprises people most about you? I eat a lot of deserts. I love deserts. And that's, <laughs> yeah. in fact, I explore any city. Before I go to any new city, whether it's in India or outside India, I will do a survey of which are the best places to eat desert in that place. Typically, they are in different corners of the city. So that way you get to explore that city also, but you also get to experience the best deserts that the place has to offer. So I really eat a lot of sweets. And that's why I have to run a lot. So I'm a marathon runner. The only reason I run every day it's so that I can burn the sweets that I'm eating. <laughs> what would be the top three desserts in the various remote corners and cities that you've had? If What come to mind? So one would be the apple pie with cream in Amsterdam. There is a Winkle 40. Mm. It's really amazing. Then you have the egg tarts, the pastel nata in Lisbon. They are really awesome. I remember going there alone and I ordered 10 of them. And the lady was like, who else is coming with you? I said, no, I'm going to eat. <laughs> I ate 10 of those tarts. And then, of course, when you... Copenhagen right now has one of the best baking scenes. So if you really want baked goods or patisseries, Copenhagen has them. And I recently went there for a talk and I remember having those cardamom buns at one very famous bakery, Juno Bakery. They have these cardamom buns that really melt in your mouth. And so they are taking the baking scene to a next level. I'm taking notes. If I'm ever going to these cities... I'll probably do the 10 hectares you did in Lisbon. So yeah, taking notes there. Now, if you were a movie character, what character do you think you could be? I would love teleportation. I mean, any character that mm. can do teleportation because it's just so easier to travel. Because I mean, sometimes going to these villages takes three to four days at times just to reach. And then the whole travel on dirt roads and back-breaking roads. So I would love teleportation. So you can just go quickly in and out. So teleportation is the one superpower I'd love to have. What's one new place you'd love to go to? I would love to see the Northern Lights, basically. Mm. Never been there. Yeah. Same here. Same here. Would love to do that. Who's someone out there you'd still want to get coffee with? Actually, I mean, I love having coffee with my wife only. So, I, I mean, there's <laughs> such aspiration of meeting anyone. I think sometimes, and, and this is one thing that really surprises me about people is anyone that you meet, even if they look very ordinary or they, they think they might have a very ordinary life, if you really start asking them, they have some of the most extraordinary life that they lead. They might have some of the most extraordinary skills that they have. Mm. And I think that's what surprises me about people also is that if you start talking to people and if you really give them the stage to talk about themselves, they they surprise you at times. And sometimes you don't even know those things about people. So I think anyone actually, I just love talking to people. I just love getting to know people. And I just love that how diverse we are as human beings. And I mean, you meet two kinds of people. Like my brother, for example, is a very introverted kind of a person. And that's what really led me to believe this, that Everyone has a lot of things to offer. It's just that they draw, they're not so vocal about it. But if you really talk to people, they are they then express themselves. Thank you for that, Jadeep. Thank you for this entire conversation. The final question before we wrap up, what's one final piece of advice or even a challenge you'd like to give the next generation? I think the only challenge or advice that I would have is that if you have some ideas, even if it's as crazy as you think it might be, Go out there and do it. I think I really believe in the slogan that Nike has, just do it. Mm. Because often we get caught up in thinking the pros and cons, what would happen, what would not happen. I think life is too short and you need to have that confidence in yourself that even if nothing happens, you can always come back to whatever you used to do earlier. So I think just go out there, do it, experiment and just enjoy life as you do it. And don't let money be the only motivator in life. Great motivation as, as we wrap up. And Jadeep, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I mean, 
you're doing so much good for society. We need so many more people like you. As you were talking about the mountains and the villages and and how lives are being impacted, I wanted to leave Singapore and come there. Then, of course, I saw the photo of my two daughters and my wife, and I am staying put. But at some stage, I'd love to join you in the mountains. Thank you very much for making time for this today. Thank you so much, Sharad. Thank you for weaving so beautifully across all the questions and making it so natural. I think you're an expert in what you do. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Sharad Lal. And I'm still Raman Segal. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.